So if you're in the room, it might look odd because I stand up here for a little bit while the stuff plays and not saying anything. Uh, that's because I have to wait till the video gets to a certain point or that tells me, now speak. I'm like a trained monkey. Just like, this, is, this is when you do it. Uh, a couple of things in the announcements. Uh, first off, we're doing them this way for the foreseeable little bit because it helps with the live stream. And so hopefully you guys are okay with that in the room. There's obviously some odd things with stuff going on, but it's like that. And if you do see Sarah, compliment her on her hair because apparently she blonded it up a little bit. And I didn't notice, but she told me. I'm like, oh, yeah, great. So you can tell her that if you're in the room. Again, uh, I had one of the people in my gospel community ask me if adults needed to go out of church center and fill something out to come to service. No, uh, that's only for kids. Adults don't need to do that. And just to be clear, we are very also close to the red tier, which allows 50%. And I was talking to Michael this week about it. And he's like, I don't know why we just didn't drop into that because we're so close to that. And so by Easter, it may be like that. Uh, that means in this room, there's probably going to be more chairs at that point as well. Again, we, we do what we do uh, as element and how we've kind of done stuff with COVID is we do a lot of stuff with the county because we do stuff with Delta. And we want to make sure that the county loves us and likes says as we do stuff with them because we want to you know stay in those good graces so we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to kids and parents and all that stuff so it's kind of where we go uh, I'm happy to be together with you uh, everybody has said how different it is to have people in the room apparently I ramble more you're welcome uh, in the middle of the message what I've been doing for the last little bit you've noticed if you watch is we put up a slide and the slide's going to have a question on it and so if you are watching on the live stream you can pause it and answer that question where you're at to carry your kids do that kind of stuff but if you're in the room what I would do is have you take your your journey guides and in here on page 66 and 67 is the journaling section those are the pages for this week and you can write that question down there and maybe after service you can talk to one another about that this is when I get there in the middle of it uh, if you have a smart device you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on uh, More and Then Events in Uversion. If you're in our local area, we'll come up by GPS in that smart device. If you're not in the local area, you type in the zip code 93455. We'll come up that way. And in Uversion right now, you're only going to get uh, announcements and the verses we're going through and a link to the journey guide because everything we're doing is through the journey guides right now. So you can get that online. If you don't have one, there's some in the back of the room. And if you're not here, you can grab one from the office this week or we'll mail one to you. Just send an email to connect at our element. Org. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors in Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. And this is a new character in the book. His name is Elihu. And it says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Berahel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And that's a righteous, good, godly anger. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand it's okay to have anger that burns at injustice and sin in the world. But I ask that you would teach us to do this in a way that Elihu eventually does, where he turns everything back to who you are, that we'd be those who speak of your gospel, of your grace, of your goodness extended to us, and that we would lift you up in all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are entering uh, our sixth of eight weeks going through the book of Job. What that means for you is you have, if you gave some up for Lent, uh, you have 14 more days left. And then you 
<laughs> cookie party, something like that. But 14 more days left. Uh, the word Lent comes from this old Latin for spring because Lent led into Easter, which typically took place or always takes place in the spring. And Lent is about preparing our hearts for the ultimate coming of Easter where Jesus rises from the grave and we understand God's great and good salvation. For us, what we're doing is we're walking through this journey guide together because we've been so separated for so long. And if we are praying towards the same direction and doing the same devotions every day and reading the same scriptures every day, it helps us as a people to begin to come back together. So that's why we're doing those journey guides as well. And in Job, we're going to start a transition today that focuses not so much on Job and his friends, but upon God. And this is what a guy named Elihu does when he shows up. Uh, A lot of people haven't even heard of Elihu before, but when he shows up, it's like, who is this guy? Uh, Where did he come from? I love his name. Elihu, son of Berhel the Buzzite. It sounds so epic. If you're like into World of Warcraft or these MMORPG games on time, uh, online, you probably just got your new avatar name. You can thank God later for the buzzite here in this. Now, as we go through this, it's going to be just like the other friends. When we went through all the other friends, I didn't give you all the verses and everything the other friends said. I gave you the overarching idea because it's hard to kind of go through each of these steps with Job and break out like a three-point sermon in it. So you're just going to kind of get the whole flow. If you want to write down the big ideas, uh, these are the big ideas of where we're going, uh, that we are not meant to do this walk with God alone, that we do it in community. And our community is meant to remind us of who God is, remind us of the gospel, to return us to God, which revives our souls as God brings us back to himself in this thing called repentance. So that's where we're going. I'm going to back up a minute, uh, so just a little bit, so that you can see where we've been in the book of Job. Because again, a lot of people haven't heard of Elihu. I think I've only heard one or two people ever give a message about him, so you may not have heard about him. But just to get there, in Job's story so far, Job has followed God. Uh, Job has lived righteously, I think, as a person could, and yet loses everything. At one point, his wife will say to Job, just curse God and die, because she's she's one of those very optimistic spouses you want to talk to when you're down. Uh, Job then has three friends who show up. And the three friends who show up, they do something beautiful. They see Job in his misery. Uh, Job has his uh, clothes torn. He's got ashes on his head. He shaved his head and they come and they tear their clothes. They put ash on their head and they just sit in silence with him and they love him. And it, it is just this beautiful thing of love and affection and their quietness of walking through this loss of his health and his wealth and his children with him. But eventually then they start to speak. They do this for seven days and then they start to speak and their words aren't words of love. They're words of criticism and accusation. It's almost like when you look in Job 1 and 2, this character called the accuser is there. We translate that as the word Satan in your Bibles, but it's literally the accuser. And the accuser is trying to get Job to fall, but he disappears after chapter two. And then Job's friends show up. It's like, well, the accuser's gone. Here's three more. Uh, Here's his friends. Here they are. Now, there are a lot of commentators who talk about this, and they think that Job's friends are jealous of Job's wealth. They're jealous of Job's godliness. I don't necessarily think it was either of those. I think they wanted to help. It's just their theology was so out of whack because their cultures had pushed them in different directions. Now, I do think it is true that there are people in this world when they live godly lives, there are other people who want to see them torn down. I think that there are sometimes people in ministries and position of power that people covet, and they want those people to fall maybe they could fall into that position. They're waiting for some calamity to fall. And this is kind of what the devil did in the book. He wants this calamity to fall upon Job. But there are, again, our believers, I think, who wait for that too. And they're secretly happy when something like that happens. And again, I don't know if that's true of Job's friends. I don't know so you know that they wanted to tear him down, but they certainly were not building him up. And the reality of their words, what they'll show is they only knew about God. 
They didn't have a relationship with God. They were merely religious. And it's interesting in Job that when when you start the book, God calls Job a man who is upright and blameless. God does not say that about Job's three friends. And so when Job's three friends show up, you're meant to remember that and think about that. Okay, God said this guy was upright. He didn't say these guys. So you're supposed to look at what they're saying. And what they say are words of platitudes and morality theology and karma theology, what sometimes we still do today. Uh, I mentioned last week that, that friendships can be totally messy, and they are. I think sometimes the greatest trials in regard to our faith doesn't sometimes come from supernatural forces. It comes from the friends that are around us. And the book of Job shows us this. The book of Job shows us the suffering uh, and how it's supposed to be within a community, and that community sometimes can be hard, but ultimately it points us to God himself and what he is doing. All three of Job's friends couldn't truly comprehend what was happening to Job and why he was suffering. They could only find fault in him. Well, these things haven't happened to me, so I must be okay. So there must be something wrong with Job and what he's doing. And I think those with a relationship with Jesus, a real relationship, have always been misunderstood by those people who are merely religious. Because merely religious people put a lot of rules around their life. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. Therefore, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, don't go to movies, don't dance, don't play cards, whatever it is. They have all these ideas, and they put that on everybody else. One commentator says this, The Bible says that all who live godly lives, this is by being in a relationship with Jesus, uh, will be persecuted. So if you don't want to be misunderstood by other people, then don't be godly. Right? So sometimes being godly can lead to a lonely existence because you will say no to other things that people will say yes to. And sometimes even religious people will say yes to. We say no to. We say no to legalism. We say yes to grace. We say yes to grace, but we have to understand that when we say no to certain things other people say yes to or yes to things other people say no to, sometimes it can get really hard. Uh, You look at Jesus in his life. The religious leaders are the ones who really didn't recognize Jesus and stood against him. I mean, there's four main groups in Jesus' day that considered themselves to be followers of God. The two biggest ones were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were like the back of the Bible club. They were very, very patriotic. And the Sadducees didn't really care. They're kind of Jewish in name only. And Jesus had much more opposition from the Pharisees than he ever did from the Sadducees. And when you look at Job and, and his friends, yes, they're jerks. Yes, they start to lose, Job starts to lose his way. Uh, yes, they kind of go after Job. But what you will see in the end is that God does not forsake Job and God does not forsake Job's friends. When you look at the all of scriptural, you'll see that God even forgives the Pharisees and goes after them to bring them back to himself. Uh, Job's three friends tell Job, you have lost your health and your wealth and your children because you have lost the blessing of God. You're not in the will of God. But you have to understand that Job, what do we see? Was in the will of God. He was, which is meant to bring us encouragement because when Job faces these things, God had never left him. Job thought he did, but God never had. And this is why Elihu shows up. Elihu is going to steer everybody back to God himself. And so what you need to see is the three friends in Job are not really pictures of unbelievers. They're not pictures of our enemies. They're pictures of people who criticize others, who merely live religiously and don't really have a relationship with God. And what is our job there? To point them back to the gospel, to understand who God actually is. Now, I understand it's always more painful when a believer attacks you for something than an unbeliever because a believer doesn't. You start to think, well, maybe I am wrong. What's going on here? For Element itself, we have had more opposition and criticism from believers than non-believers. Just read our Yelp reviews. They're great. Uh, Christians are always looking for a way to judge us for any words or any things that they don't like. How we handled COVID, how we didn't handle COVID, you know, all this kind of stuff. The, The words that I say up here, sometimes I will say a word 
or words up here that people don't like, and we get Yelp reviews about it. Uh, and I'm trying to get better. You know that. But, but the thing is, people are always wanting to criticize. You didn't say this right. You didn't do this right. Jesus faced more opposition from the Pharisees than he did from the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, not that I'm Jesus or Element is Jesus or Job is Jesus. What I'm saying to you is we must be a people who love and follow God in relationship with him. Just don't be surprised. If you decide to fully live in a relationship with Jesus and people don't get it, even those who claim to be followers of Jesus themselves. So what you see, Job, at the beginning of the book, he's got this relationship with God. He trusts God. It's amazing. But then after his friends show up, he starts to get off track and he starts to become very self-focused and look at himself. At one point, he says, I want to lay my case before God. I'm going to put God in the witness stand and God's going to better say, you're innocent, Job, because I know I'm innocent and I'm going to go after God. And so, again, this is where Elihu shows up. And a lot of people says, well, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Some people say, well, he must have just been a fourth friend. But, but he's not a fourth friend because he wasn't listed there when the friends initially showed up. And there's this whole back and forth conversation. He's obviously there for, but nobody pays him any attention. And when Elihu eventually does speak, he will speak for five chapters. Nobody will interrupt him, including Job, which is amazing because Job interrupts everybody, even God himself. And what, what Elihu does is steer them all back to God. All back to God. And when he's done, uh, God then shows up right after that. And when God speaks, he will rebuke Job and Job's three friends, but he doesn't rebuke Elihu. So again, he simply speaks out of nowhere, speaks passionately, and then disappears. So first off, you know he's a young man. Uh, he says this, I was waiting for everybody else to speak, and I'm a young man, so I didn't speak. Usually in this culture, when you're young, nobody would pay attention to you. But when he does speak, he is the most theologically astute of any of the people really in the book. It's kind of like when Paul says to Timothy, uh, Timothy is Paul's young protege. He's going out to be a pastor but he's really young. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul's like, Timothy, I know it's going to be hard because you're young. And the tendency when you're young is you're very zealous and you want to lash out and go after people. But I'm telling you, instead of doing that, set an example in conduct and your love and your faith and your purity. That's what you do. That's what you do. And I think for Elihu, you see him begin to do this. In his anger, he wasn't unrighteous. In his anger, he still steers everybody back to God. Elihu, young guy, a lot of maturity, but he was patient, listened to every set, what everybody said, and then spoke. And there are a couple things that help us to understand who he was. First off, Elihu means my God exists or my God is. When Moses stands before the burning bush with God and God says, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And so Moses says, well, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. Always have been, always will be. I just am. And so what's Elihu's name mean? My God just is. That's who he is. Son of Berhel means child of the blessing or of God's blessing. So how's he a blessing at pointing to who God is? Well, he was angry. And that anger was actually righteous anger. You see this in chapter 32, chapter 33. He will rebuke Job. He will rebuke Job's friends. He will decimate all their crazy arguments on the playing field and then turn everybody's focus heavenward and begins to build his case about who God is. Uh, You can read in Job 33 where Elihu doesn't sugarcoat anything in his understanding of who God is. Nothing at all. Like he will say God can bring and allow pain and suffering and even, even death. But he points to the larger purpose of it. And he will remind them that God's way are ultimately beyond all of our ways. Opening Bibles at Job chapter 37. 
Job 37. Now, a few medieval commentators liken Elihu to like John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist do? He prepares the way for Jesus to show up. What is Elihu doing here? Elihu is preparing the way for God to show up. William Blake in 1805 painted this painting of what he thought it looked like. This is Elihu. So what's he doing? Pointing to God, being like, hold your horses, buddies. Hold your horses. We're going to talk about God now. And now, if, if you look at this, this actually harkens back to some painters that painted maybe one to 200, 200 years before William Blake. And they talk about John the Baptizer. So the first one, this is Leonardo da Vinci's John the Baptist. I know he looks like Michael Bolton. We got it, right? <laughs> but he, what's he doing? He's pointing to the cross, inviting people in. Uh, this next one is Raphael's John the Baptist. And how medieval painters like this, they painted men who they thought were young, really young and kind of effeminate as well. But what, what is he doing? Pointing to the cross, right? Here's the cross. This is where we're going. This is where we're going. Uh, Gustav Doré, I love his black and white reliefs. Uh, this is his John the Baptist. What's he doing? Got the cross, heavenward. Here's the Trinity. What is it? Prepare the way of the Lord. This is where you need to look. Your focus goes all these places and it needs to be this way. This is what Elihu does. We're not meant to be merely religious. We're meant to understand who God himself is. Is. So what does he say? Job 37, verses 10 through 14. It says a lot more than this, but this is where I want to get to. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture, and the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. What does he do? He resets everybody from themselves to who God is in himself. He will even point to the calamity in Job's life as a wondrous work of God. So if you're watching on the live stream, uh, here's my question. You can pause this. If you're in the room, you can write this down and talk about it later. This is my question. Can you pinpoint a wondrous work of God in your own life or in your own lifetime? Whether good or bad, where something bad maybe happened and God brought some beautiful thing out of it or some good thing he just brought, can you pinpoint a wondrous work of God in your life or in your lifetime? I think it's important to do that because we'll get our focus off ourselves and onto who God is. Now, you look at Elihu, okay? Elihu is announcing that, that God is coming. In ancient times like this, when a king came in, someone would always announce it with fanfare. Here comes the judge. Here comes, you know, something, something like that. Like the day in a modern courtroom, that's what a bailiff does, right? A bailiff says, all rise. The court is now in session. The honorable... Judge Judy, now presiding, that's what they do. At the State of the Union address, upon the arrival of the President of the United States, the Sergeant of the Arms says, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. or Mrs. Speaker, whoever is the Speaker at the time, the President of the United States. And this is what Elihu is doing. After all the words that have happened, it's easy to forget that the point is not our words. The point is God's words. What does God want to say? And Elihu, if you think he's a fourth friend, his speech doesn't match what the friends say. His speech goes somewhere else. So you have to see him as something completely different, someone who is announcing. He is like a a bridge, a transition between all the words of men for the last 31 chapters into the words of God. That's what he's pointing towards. And immediately after Elihu speaks, God then shows up. And what God does, he speaks powerfully and forcefully. Uh, He causes Job to rethink everything Job has been saying. And incidentally, God does not answer any of Job's questions, in case you were wondering. Now, in Job chapter 35, what Elihu will do is make this interesting statement in this way to kind of reset them into who God is. Uh, he's been listening to all that Job and his friends have said. And Job asked this question at one point. Basically, the question is, well, what's the point? 
Well, what's the point? People ask that question today. If good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, why bother being good at all? Again, it sounds like a question we ask. And Elihu's answer is beautiful because it's not karma theology. It's not, it's not morality theology. Elihu says if the only reason you do good things is to get blessings of God and the only reason you avoid bad things is to avoid God's punishment, well, then you miss the point. You miss the point of relationship with God. You miss this beautiful thing that is called love, that God has called us into relationship with himself. If you're merely trying to live religiously, you're not living in relationship. And we are meant to be a people in relationship with God himself. See, God doesn't need our goodness. Not that we shouldn't be good. We should be good. Okay, I'm not saying we're not going to be good. But there, and in the end, there's no bad thing that we could do that could ever really harm God. But what we do is we live in a world who is filled with people. People rich and poor, people young or old, people uh, suffering or celebrating. This is where we live. And when we are in relationship with God himself, what does God call us to do and be? We are his hands and feet to the world. We are his ambassadors. We point to a bigger kingdom. That's what we are meant to do. And so in this world, what God asks us is not that we spin our wheels trying to be righteous before God, because God has already given us his righteousness. What we would be is more righteous with one another and how we point to who God is and speak of the gospel. Guys, there are three things that, that we will never understand. First off, we'll never understand God and all his mystery and wonder. We just can't. But what we can do is step into one another's lives and conversation and dialogue and friendship and point one another back to the gospel. The second thing is we can't prevent tragedies from happening. We can't. But what can we do? We can step into one another's lives and pray for each other and be there for one another in silence and in encouragement through long days and lonely nights. The third thing we can't do is we can't always expect that God's going to show up and speak to every single one of us out of a whirlwind. Because first off, if we did, we'd probably pass out or just pee our pants, like one or the other. That's just what would happen. I mean, what we can do, though, is we can disciple one another, proclaim the gospel, remind one another what the gospel actually is in every place of our life in tangible ways. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Job 38. The book of Job is not meant to be the story of this one lone guy and how he toughs it out and all of his pain. You're meant to see this community in there and how we live in community with one another. And sometimes it is messy. But Elihu does is resets all of us to understand who God is. So uh, Job 38 verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The Lord answered Job out of the... Can you imagine what that would be like? I personally think this was, this was Jesus, but I want God to come here. I want God to answer me. I want God to tell me if I'm innocent. I want God to... And boom, there he is. It's like, whoops. <laughs> Job chapter 38, verse 2. God, this is what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. What is Job saying? I'm going to question God. God shows up. That's not how this works, buddy. I'm going to question you. And some people think that God is being really mean here. Like God is saying, you know, man up, you girl. I want to talk to you right now. No, this is actually grace in the book. God is preparing Job. I'm going to talk to you. And when I talk to you, you're going to brace yourself because I'm God and it's going to be hard. And the most striking thing about when God talks to Job again is God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. God doesn't talk about the accuser, you know, standing before him. He doesn't talk about any of that or these reasons why. And at first glance, it could seem mean. But part of what what God is doing is showing Job, Job, your mind is finite and mine is infinite. And there's a real beauty in God's responses. There really is, which we'll talk about next week when we get there. But what you'll see is that God doesn't show up and declare Job innocent or guilty like Job wanted. What he does is reminds Job of who God himself is so Job would understand the kind of person that God is. 
Now, open your Bibles to Job chapter 42. What I want to do today is kind of finish off the story of, of Job's friends. So you kind of see what kind of happened in the midst of this and, and where it all went. Because God does. He reveals himself. And God will have some hard words for Job's friends. Uh, Job 42, verse 7. This is what happens. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the, Job's, the words we'll look at next week, by the way. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, has every word that Job said been right? No. No, but he's in relationship with God. He loves God. God gets that. Now, therefore, take seven bowls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Now, that doesn't mean they're offering these things to Job. They're offering to God, but Job is going to pray for his friends. Job is now seen as a priest. Uh, you know, this, think about this. In the New Testament, we are called to be a kingdom of priests to the world. That's who we're supposed to be. What we are doing is we're bridging so people can see who God is. And this is what Job is now called to do. You're becoming a priest to your friends. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Naamathite, all three of them, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. See, what's amazing is through all the bad advice, through all the bad theology, God's grace gets extended to these friends. And what it brings about is a repentance, a returning of every single one of them. It's amazing because they're willing to listen. They're willing to go and apologize. They suck up their pride and they go to Job. When God speaks, they actually listen. It's kind of one of those moments you hope for in movies, like when the wrongly accused guy is vindicated at the end. But Job does this with so much grace that he prays for his friends. Now, I want to bring this together for you, this whole idea of what is happening with Elihu, because it makes a lot of sense for us today we understand the life of Christ, especially if we look at Elihu like John the baptizer. This idea, prepare the way of the Lord. When John the Baptist shows up, what, what happens? Matthew 3, 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's his message? Repent. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, makes his paths straight. It's this thing. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We're going to make straight the past. Jesus shows up and John's like, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. What does Elihu do? The same thing. God is coming. Look heavenward. Consider the wondrous works of God. When we hear this word repent, too often we think of somebody in downtown New York City with a sandwich board that says, the apocalypse is nigh. Repent. God's going to destroy the world. But the word repent is a beautiful word. It means to return. R.C. Sproul talks about there's two ways that we typically repent, quote unquote, today. Uh, one is called attrition and one is called contrition. Now, attrition is, occurs when someone repents because they've got a sword at their throat or a gun to their head. Uh, say you're sorry or physics is going to rip your arms off. It, it's, it's that kind of thing. It, it's counsel culture. It's like if a business says something on Twitter or does something somebody doesn't like, then everybody just goes crazy and they start apologizing all over themselves, not because they're really sorry, but because everybody's going crazy. And so like, oh, we're really sorry. They might even, may not even mean it, which you see hot mic moments, at least when people don't really mean it, but they're, they just start doing it because they feel like they have to. Um, um, a couple weeks ago, one of the guys in Mumford's and Sons said something, I can't remember, but uh, Twitter went crazy. And he starts apologizing. Sean Jones and I were talking about this, and Sean goes, what happened to rock stars? Rock stars used to be like, oh, I'm a rock star, I don't care what you say. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? But, but that's attrition. You're just saying, oh, I'm sorry, because you're afraid of something. Now, contrition, on the other hand, this is real repentance. This is where our hearts are truly broken over our sin, because we've offended a good and a holy God. 
True repentance is not about getting out of trouble or getting a ticket out of hell or fire insurance. It's recognizing that without Jesus, we are all lost. And God comes in grace and goodness to rescue us. And we fall down in repentance because of his gracious, saving love. Now, attrition is what Job's three friends tried to bring about in Job. Because they're like, oh, God's doing this. If you don't do this, God's going to get you even more. What does Elihu intend to bring about? And what does God ultimately bring about? Contrition. They bring about real repentance, an understanding of who we are versus who God is. It's a call to remember God. That, that's the call of Elihu, then by God himself. And what it brings about is a gratefulness in their midst because they get to see a picture of who God is. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces attrition. That's what it produces. It is sorrow. It's just feeling bad. Say, I'm sorry over and over while I'm going and doing the exact same thing. It's guilt and shame. But guilt and shame never changes us. What what Paul echoes in what the Bible proclaims is that when we have true sorrow over our sin, when we see who God really is, that leads to repentance, a return to God himself. And this is why we say that the gospel makes all things new, even us. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm 23. If you open to the middle of the Bible, it's probably going to be right there. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is typically read at funerals because it has this line that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It says death. People are like, oh, I'll read that at a funeral. But it's not a psalm about death. It's a psalm about life and returning to who God is, to who God is. And those have been far from God. It's almost a psalm that Job could have written. Not that he did, but it's kind of like that. Job 23, verses 1 through 3 says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this word for restore, it's this word called shuv. And this word means to refresh. It's a very common word in Hebrew. When you get to the word for repentance, it's actually a compound word. And shuv is right in the middle of it. It's teshuvah. And it means to return. Return to who God is calling us to be. It's returning home to God. You'll find that 71 times in the book of Psalms. Now, this word nefesh in there, it's, it re- refers to a soul or something, a person or a life. Uh, but in its most ancient meaning, it meant to breathe. And by putting these things together, the psalm says that that God refreshes our soul. God revives our lives. God brings us back to himself. God revives our humanity, who we are actually meant to be as his image bearers in the world, that we're not a cog in the gears. We're not just a number. God restores us to what he meant for us to be when he created us to be human. That's the understanding. This is the overarching grace in the book of Job. Because God not only returns Job, God will return Job's three friends, God will return Job's wife, God is rescuing and restoring everyone. And when we are a people, I think, who begin to understand this goodness of who God is, when we begin to walk in His grace, the reviving that He brings, and we're like, this is so wonderful. And then we start to realize who God actually is. And sometimes we can still have a tendency, like Job's friends, to twist that a bit. Where we start to lose sight of who God is in His grace, and we only see who God is in His holiness. And we need to see both. I'm not saying we shouldn't see God in His holiness. If you look for anything to commend Job's three friends for, is they looked at God in His holiness. They saw, saw God as just holy other. Here He is, and that, that's amazing when you look at that. But their idea of that, it blinded them to the grace of God. I think that, that we need to be a people who understand both. God's holiness and grace, because both of those things will, in the end, humble us as a people. 
It, it will. Uh, I think that's where Elihu was. There's this parable that Jesus talks about where you've got a tax collector and a Pharisee, and they both go into the temple. And the Pharisee looks at the tax collector and he goes, oh, look at that horrible guy. And he prays, God, thank you. I'm not like that, that horrible tax collector over there. And, and this is kind of like Job's friends. Oh, God, thank you. We're not like Job. These things didn't happen to us, so we must be righteous. And not like that poor friend of ours named Job. And a lot of people will look at this, this parable in, in the scriptures that Jesus says, and, and we will say, oh, look at that horrible Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. I'm smarter than he was. Thank God I'm better than that guy that thought he was better than everybody else. We will do that. We look at Job's friends and we say, oh my goodness, look at those friends. Their theology was terrible. Thank God I'm not like those guys who thought that they were better than everybody else, right? And that's how we walk around thinking. But what the scriptures want us to see is that we are the Pharisee, that we are Job's friends. That's who we are. We are those who typically judge everybody else around us, thinking that we are better than everybody else. And what is God's call in our life? Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. Look at me, because what will that bring about? Contrition. It'll bring about true repentance in our lives. That's what we need to understand. When God himself becomes our desire, we want to come home. We want to be who he made us to be. It makes us a more graceful people as we understand the depth of his holiness. We begin to trust him in all things in our life because he is our life. Guys, this is the good news of what the gospel brings about. God doesn't leave Job in his brokenness. God revives him. God doesn't leave Job's friends and their sin and their bad theology. He revives them. God doesn't leave Mrs. Job in her crazy, unoptimistic view of the world. He revives her and he revives us. He revives our soul. And what we're meant to do is love him for it. We're meant to love him for it. A revived life is who we're meant to be. That is where repentance is supposed to lead. Contrition. The good news is that Jesus came to bring us home again. This whole thing is pointing to what Christ would do from all the places that we have misunderstood him, from the places that we have become self-focused, from the places that we have been lost in darkness, Jesus comes and he dies for us in our place, takes the death that we deserve. Why? Because there is a holiness of God that is full of justice and righteousness. And he takes our death upon himself and he gives us his life. He takes our unrighteousness and our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And he raises us to life. And our spirits come back alive and we get to be in communion with God himself. This is what the entire book points to. This is the joy that we're supposed to live in. That we are people who have revived souls and lives and that God is good and he calls us to himself. And it is simply amazing. This is why every single week at Element, we take you to this place. Even if it's on the live stream, we talk about this thing called communion. Because at communion, we remember the holiness and the grace of God both. The holiness is that, is that we had sin that separated us from God that we can never pay for. And who does it for us? Jesus. You know, we, we are Job's friends. We're the Pharisees. We're, we're terrible. And Jesus comes and pays for our sin. And then what does he do? He rises to life in grace and extends that to us. This is why you take that cracker. It's, it's a little, and the little things are tiny. If you have really good dexterity, you can still break it. Yeah, it might not be as, as big old cracker like we used to have. But you take that wine of that grape juice and that broken cracker that reminds us of his broken body and his shed blood for us. Why? Because he is holy. Because God is holy. But he's also full of grace and he extends his love to us and our rescue and our redemption. As we lift up who God is in all the aspects of who he is and we return in places understanding that this word repentance is beautiful. 
for how we're supposed to live. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. If you need prayer, if you've been living maybe in a way that all you see in, in the world uh, and of God is attrition, that you want to, quote unquote, repent because you don't want God to smack you. Like if you're someone who says, well, I couldn't go to church. Uh, lightning would strike the church or something like that. First off, you're giving yourself way too much credit. Uh, secondly, that's not how it works. That's attrition. That, that's a fear of God that is not true and is not real. What we are is a people who live in places that understand God's great goodness spoken over us. So we would then live in true repentance and humbleness. This is what the gospel brings. This is why we must understand it correctly. This is when you get to the end of the book, you see how Job's life completely changes because he does understand better who God is in his person. And I think when we do, not living in ways of the spiritual attrition, but living in true repentance, it changes us as well to be a people who live out these great things of holiness and grace. So if you need prayer for that, if you want to talk to somebody about that, we would love to be able to pray with you about that. If you're afraid to be around anybody, you can even send an email to us, connectedourelement.org or prayerourelement.org, and we'd love to do that. Uh, If you're in the room, I love being able to say this, that God has been so generous with us, so we get to be a generous people. And there's offering boxes next to every door. We don't pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done in us. God has been so generous and good, so we want to be a generous people. I think understanding God's generosity and grace teaches us to be a generous people. Um, you can always give online. I give online, you know, but whatever. The offering boxes are there. Uh, and in the end, uh, I would encourage you to, to take the question I asked in the middle of the message and talk to one another about that. Uh, take the questions this week as you go through the journey guide and you know, start to stew on those a little bit. Talk to one another about that. Let it begin to take us deeper in understanding this idea of repentance and hope and grace that God has extended to us so we would live out as a joyful people in this world reflecting who God is, being his hands and feet. Because again, it's not about our goodness. It's that God was good for us and to us. And again, we should be better people. Don't get me wrong. But we are not spinning our wheels trying to get God to like us because we're so righteous. What we do is we rest in the grace that God has given us and live that out in the world so he is glorified and honored in all things. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would take us and remind us daily of your holiness, that we would be awe-inspired by how you speak into everything in the world, that everything moves and functions by your word. Even viruses that cause a pandemic across the entire world. You are sovereign over all things. Have us understand how good and righteous you are, but also have us understand your great love and grace that has also been spoken to us. And that by fully understanding both of those things, we would come to be a people who live in repentance, who live in true contrition, who are just undone by the grace that we have received. And we'd be those who walk in the balance of your holiness and your grace. And that you would in turn be glorified by how we live our lives. And so we ask that we get a deeper understanding of that, especially the book of Job, and you would send us out into this world to those around us, who are fearful, who are angry, who are maybe also full of hope because we can speak even more of the great hope of you. Have us be people who understand that no matter what stood between us and you, Jesus did pay for all of that himself. 
And you, in turn, extend to us grace. Teach us to walk in your holiness and your grace. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen.